Well, howdy, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Real Grit, the Cowboy Podcast. We thank you for joining us for yet another episode. I am joined by my good friends here and my co-hosts. We have Cayman and Tristan. Hello, fellas. Hey, guys. How's it going? Hey. How's all of our wonderful audience? <laughs> and you guys. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. That's, you know. I'm, I'm sure they're fine and we're fine. Everybody's fine. We're all good. We're all yeah, good because we're going to talk about part two. We're talking about books. We're talking about literature. I mean, you know. That is true. Yeah. You can't get any better than being a bunch of, you know, being this, kind of this a, author, a, a nerdy I, book club. I know something about and read some of his stuff. Oh, hey, there you go. <laughs> Probably most school children have. So there might be some, uh, uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, it'll be interesting to see kind of how we're going to take this is to show uh, how Mark Twain and his book Roughing It is another example of early American literature of the frontier. Uh, you know, Mark Twain is mostly, I'd say, known today for his for being a, a humorous and a humorist writer. Um, you know, he wrote a lot of different novels that that kind of have a a, a funny twist to them, or or a kind of a uh, sarcastic twist, I guess you'd say. Um, today, we probably would say that things like Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn are still known culturally well and attributed to him. Um, but he also was a a writer of of travel literature. And I think that that's that's one part of him that a lot of people don't realize. And that was kind of his that, start, wasn't it? That was where that he was initially his, that began. That was his start. We'll, yeah, we'll talk about that in a second. It was he really it was his big start in the into into writing books. Anyway, was was travel literature, and I mean, I I think that he had at least five or six or here you go, yeah, seven different books he wrote on his travels, um, and they were all pretty popular. So um, you kind of look at what travel literature was too, and we kind of talked about this in the last episode where you're dealing in a time when the general population, most people probably would not wander very far from where they were born and where no. they lived. <laughs> it was hard. It was a long walk, yeah, and horse rides, walking, chance of dying, drowning, in, you know, native attacks yeah, or bandits. If you or... decided to go long distances, you might go like on a boat across the ocean and there's a huge chance you're not going to make that trip either. Um, and a lot of it's so it was really a a uh, unless unless you were well to do I mean you had a lot of the people who were well off financially you know they would go and they would travel uh, to uh, to the old country you know they go to places like Italy and uh, France they they'd sail in the Mediterranean they'd go up the Nile things like that but if you're just some poor dirt farmer or whatever you probably were going to stick close to where you always were. I think one of my uh, one of my favorite quotes from the movie Sergeant York with Gary Cooper was: "There's this guy that's in town that's that's selling stuff. He's a salesperson. He's talking about how bad the roads were to get into this town in the middle of nowhere, Tennessee. And he asked he asked all the all the old timers sitting in the store. I just want to know how did you fellows get into this valley? And this one old timer says, "Well, we was born here." <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so that was that was pretty much the truth for for that sort of stuff. So. Travel literature in that days was in those days was actually a pretty big selling genre because you probably weren't ever going to see these places yourself, and even 
even at this time, photography hardly exists at all. It really doesn't exist in print um, for books. And so you kind of needed to, to see it through somebody else's eyes. Yeah. And with the guy like Mark Twain, that's what he was doing. But Mark Twain has this particular way he kind of sees the world. And I think that's what also helps to take his stories from just being pure travel literature. Like, oh, you're going to see this and this, where he kind of, he always kind of observes people and kind of their quirks and, and their quaintness sometimes and kind of pokes fun at himself and other people and their customs and things like that. So he met his first literary success with a short story called the celebrated jumping frog of Calaveras County, which came out in 1865. Which was um, kind of a humorous, wasn't it? It was. It a, was yeah. yeah. It, was, it was based on a story that he'd reportedly had heard in a mining camp at, at some saloon in a mining camp. And he said that he then, you know, wrote it down and, and, uh, and it was published from there that actually went through several different versions. It actually had a different name originally than that. Um, it was eventually published in a kind of a small booklet form with some other of his, with kind of a collection of some of his other short stories, um, and titled that. So in, 1867, he was hired by a San Francisco newspaper to accompany a tour of, of people that were going on a tour of Europe and ultimately the, the Holy Land. And so Twain boarded the ship Quaker City and went on a five-month journey. And in that journey, he wrote his observations and a book, The Innocence Abroad, was released. And that was in 1869 that book came out. And the book was wildly popular at the time. And actually, and we think we kind of mentioned this in the last episode, this book was his best-selling book of his lifetime. <laughs> yeah. yeah, to this day, most people don't, haven't heard of it. Most people haven't yeah, heard exactly. of it. Exactly. And, and it's it kind of goes back to say, it's, it is funny to observe where you see that things that were popular during like an artist's lifestyle or musicians or stuff like that, what ends up being popular later on, generations after they're gone, is usually completely different and usually it's stuff that may not have been very popular at all whenever it first came out i know some of like beethoven's most famous works that we know today actually kind of flopped whenever they came out when he yeah. really, when he when he first performed them yeah i mean a lot of these and, artists really died penniless right i think that's kind of becoming common knowledge that i think like van gogh beethoven um i can't think of many off the top of my head right now but i know a lot of them died penniless because they were, I mean, the arts weren't seen the same way they are now. It was kind of the beginning of art as a cultural phenomenon, I think, during this time. Um, and I think that, you know, I mean, of course you have, you know, we, we read books like, uh, what was the one I read the other day? Uh, Machiavelli's The Prince, I think it's called, right? Um, in the, written in the 1700s about, you know, I don't know, government or whatever, but that was written, that was read only by like the most highly educated personnel, right? Now we have an actual um, psychological explanation for Machiavellians that were named after this guy who wrote a book that nobody read while he was alive, <laughs> you know? And I think, uh, yeah, in my it's research with Mark Twain, you're gone. Yeah. In my research with Mark Twain, he was, you know, wildly popular for an American artist, really. Um, or American writer, I think, um, based on like you were talking about this whole travel kind of 
literature that he started out with and of course we'll talk about he gets more into you know the the backwoods of the south and that sort of thing but interesting yeah i think it's an interesting like idea or thought that i kind of found in the research of this all and he describes himself as pretty rustic and rough and you know like his humble origins i mean he wasn't like he was high society to begin with i also didn't realize he was a redhead that explains a lot (laughs) (laughs) well and that also explains like his writing style it's probably more for the common man right like even though i have you know i've been in college for six years and multiple other colleges or whatever like i'll read some of these books by mac like just machiavelli for instance and i'm like yeah that's over my head man like you know what i mean you read mark twain you're like yeah he's a he's a writer for the people Mm -hmm. and that was i mean at that time was kind of i don't know it's controversial but it was it was a it there it was a subject that was talked about there was good literature and then there was gutter literature and eventually in the future i'd like to kind of tackle the subject of dime novels because that that also kind of kind of goes to the same thing where you had these these cheaply pr- produced mass produced written very quickly books and and i i've read a few dime novels and you know they're written kind of in that same style they're very they're very they're very simple i guess you know the the vernacular is much more is much more plain not so flowery as as somebody who would have been considered a great author of the 1800s, like some like Charles Dickens or something like that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can um, probably compare it to now. You know, common nowadays is the comic book or the graphic novel, right? It's it's well. I mean, their pictures are usually colorful and it's easy to read, easy to follow along with the story, and it's something you can just pick up and like spend 10, 15, 20 minutes and enjoy it and put it down, and you're not having to like think deeply about some subject or you know some nonsense but of course yeah i will definitely talk about them dime novels in the future yeah yeah another thing too is is that you have to kind of think about where a lot of the audiences were for was was really for the common person who you know if you had any education it probably was only to the ability to 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 read and write and do some basic arithmetic um so a lot of these books that were kind of written by these high society type of folks were just not accessible whereas you had something like this where it was not only accessible it was also extremely affordable um so you know you could go and and pick up a a story for really cheap and read it and enjoy it i mean they're all pretty formulaic they're all pretty much the same thing but you you know it might be the only thing you have to read for a while (laughs) you know if you're out in a remote area um and so with twain i think that's where he kind of has a that accessibility because he comes from, you know, Missouri. He's, he's grows up on the river, you know, and, and, you know, really in a way, his, his stories of things like Huckleberry Finn and, and Tom Sawyer are kind of in a way based on his own experiences as a, as a, as a young person there in that same place. And he kind of fictionalizes it. So, um, but yeah, so travel literature for, for Twain was, was a big starter. I mean, so yeah, he does, Innocence Abroad, and that's his first legitimate kind of book, full-length book, and it does extremely well. So what do you got to do if you have a success? You got to make a sequel, right? Well, in Twain's case, he actually made a prequel, and his next book, and that's the book we're really talking about today, is the book Roughing It, which was released in 1872. You see, with Innocence Abroad, he was working for a San Francisco newspaper at the time, and 
you know, sent off to go and do this. Well, the uh, uh, roughing it kind of follows his journey from when he leaves Missouri, basically ends up to about the time where he's about ready to go off to write the, or to experience what he would for the innocence of product goes up to where he starts getting into um, writing for newspapers and things. So it's, kind of a semi-autobiographical account of his journey west because in Mark Twain's way of things, he would obviously go and he would use his wit and his humor and kind of take these stories and and kind of, I don't know, twist them is the right word, but he kind of amped them up to the next level, kind of make them a little bit more over the top. Spin a yarn, yeah. Yeah, yeah good old yarn, you know, good story. Well, it's like that's, um, you hear a lot of like good storytellers. Like I have family members who like tell great stories. They're all based on fact, but you know that they're, they're embellishing them and it makes it very entertaining, but they're all based off like in this, most all his books were based off of people he knew characters or experiences he'd had just, he knew how to make them much more funny and entertaining. It kind of, like I mentioned earlier, he just had this way of seeing people that just was, it was just funny. Um, and that's, he would, these people he would meet on his, on his trip West. So what he does is he, he, right, the reason he went out West was his older brother was appointed the secretary to the governor of Nevada territory. And Dwayne had been in, he, he actually joined, uh, a, a small Confederate troop in Missouri. Yeah, for a short time. The Civil War was breaking out right around was, that time. It was a and very short, short stint. He ran very away. Very short stint. He, <laughs> yeah, he basically had said that, that that soldiering he figured out was not for him. <laughs> so um, he uh, he went out, he went and decided to go with his brother who was, was going out west. And so they end up out in out in uh, Nevada. And he goes, he, he kind of went to be, in, in a way, a... Um, kind of just a, an assistant to his brother. He intended actually only to stay out West for a couple months and then come back to Missouri. But it ended up being many, many years. He ends up out West and he ends up working in mines. He works the Comstock load Virginia, in Virginia city, Nevada, but mining fails him. And he eventually starts working for the territorial enterprise newspaper in, in Virginia city. And that's where his writing career starts to take off. And eventually, he would end up in the um, in California in in the gold uh, fields there, and eventually over towards San Francisco, where he would write for papers there. So, roughly, it kind of follows his his journey, his all his attempts at this, at his experiences. He he makes observations of people he comes across and things he hears about, and and uh, even today, I mean, I guess some people might even criticize him because he he has opinions on on the Native Americans that are probably not in vogue anymore he really really he goes through salt lake at one point and he really spends like a good chunk of i don't know probably like five six chapters kind of poking fun at the mormons and uh he has one whole chapter where he goes and he and he basically criticizes the book of mormon uh, you know it was for him like i said he was always kind of observing people and especially people who who were i guess in his eyes he saw were were different and why they why they were different, and I don't know. Maybe you'd say, in a way, he could have been a bit irreverent to people and their views. But you know, he was just kind of it was just from his perspective, and um, you know, he's writing this book to for people who probably don't know a lot about this sort of stuff, and so you kind of get this really raw type of of uh, a raw and humorous type of look into 
his uh, his observations of of the West, which I think makes it a great a great book on the early frontier. I mean, this is this happens. You know, he goes out west in 1861, and he has to do it by stagecoach. There are no trains yet. The the transcontinental railroad is not complete until 1869. Um, so, you know, it's it's a uh, it's still a a very hard access area and and you're still able to kind of experience it as it was before you know big machinery you know the steam locomotive kind of started to settle the uh the west a lot quicker as as it as it made its way across there so um yeah and i think uh, like one comment about that i think is i was reading um a lot about kind of the the books that Mark Twain wrote that are being banned right now. I mean, of course, you know, Adventures of Huckleberry Finn is one of the more common ones, um, which just surprises me because I grew up. I mean, I read it, and then I, I'd watch the movie. Um, but it, you know, you talk about the, the opinions of the Native Americans and Mormons, and that was very common in that time, though I think, and that's something that a modern reader probably won't take into account. You know, you pick up a book from Mark Twain, you're like, hey, this guy's famous, I know the name. You read it and you're like, wow, he's a, you know, pick your pick your, your word. Um, but like Sherlock Holmes, the first Sherlock Holmes, I might be mistaken, but I do believe the first Sherlock Holmes story. Study in um, Scarlet. Yeah, the, the, what was it again? Study in Scarlet. Study in Scarlet, uh, I do believe about the Mormons, he yeah. was about a Mormon. <laughs> and it was a very... Oh yeah, no, it made, he... Uh, yeah, very derogatory... Or yeah. negative. Well, it 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 said things that were that claim. Well, it's 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 a fiction piece, but it it, it was is. it made it painted them as as in a bad light. So yeah, it got a lot of negative press it, from the yeah, LDS. It did uh, absolutely. Community. So I think, yeah. Well, you can glean from reading these books is kind of the mentality of just an average American at that time concerning these groups, right? Yeah. Well, the um, funny thing is, uh, he talks about being rough, but like later on, he marries a socialite, and he specifically says that, you know, she was from more of a uh, up upper class. Was she was the daughter of a rich coal miner, and she was friends with very more what they consider liberal type people minded them of of the time, like Harriet Beecher Stowe, or Harriet Beecher Stowe, and then. Um, uh, Frederick Douglass and such. So I, and she and he actually has a quote where he says about his wife, um, saying that quote, she would reform him a mere humorist for his, from his rustic ways. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. I think later on in life, he, he actually was pretty, um, um, what's the word like forward, like progressive in his views later on. Um, as, yeah, as, I mean, as it goes for the time <laughs> in the community he was in. He might have been seen. I, I didn't see anything that says this, but in these early years, you know, the, the period we're talking about right now, um, he might might have been seen as a bit progressive. I mean, he's still like a guy who isn't from the area writing about the area, right? Yeah. And yeah. So, and, he, and actually, he was an advocate of... Um, against slavery later on in life even though it was just yeah they said that he people in his family had slaves and stuff it was just part of life that's kind of what he was writing about in there it's like because like with uncle barry finn and stuff he's kind of like this kid is like trying to understand like well this is dumb what what why you know why are you you know treated this way kind of thing it, it was a what's the word making it real and a human type take on on the situation wasn't just accepting it 
Yeah, and it, wasn't I like he, it wasn't he gave it a, a good. He didn't give it a good view. Like he didn't so no. say, like, "Oh yeah, it's great. Everyone should do it." It was it was a negative, very real look at something that was an issue at the time. Yeah, I think above all, what Mark Twain really did is he, you know, again, if you if you look at the time period of his writing, in terms of the West, like the Civil War had just ended, um, you know really America as a country was more concerned about reconstruction at this point, you know, healing the wounds from the war. So the West was, I mean, that's where your, your business magnets went to, right? It wasn't, the government wasn't escape. super concerned. <laughs> well, it's like, I mean, even Mark Twain went to escape from the war when he exactly. was trying to get out of being military. Exactly. So what you're having is this, you know, following the war, you have an influx of mostly probably civil war veterans, um, you know, moving out there and they're rough, man. They fought a war, a horrific war, really. And um, to put it bluntly, they were, you know, rough, rough, very rough people. I mean, that, you know, roughing it and those sort of things. Um, so I think it's, a, yeah, when I read, I think what's really kind of interesting about Mark Twain is he's a household name, but I would wager a lot of people have never read Mark Twain. Um, I know for me personally, I've read two of his books. That's it, you know, even while, you know, preparing for this uh, podcast i mean they're, they're big books for one and it's sometimes hard to read because it's just a different way of writing that he wrote in um but yeah everybody knows who mark twain is but ask him okay have you read his book they're probably like yeah probably not but do so. they know who samuel clemens is uh, <laughs> <laughs> or josh or thomas josh. jefferson snodgrass <laughs> i think he should have stuck with that as his pen name that was a better uh, pen name well i i heard one thing too that mark twain actually was um was actually used by someone else at one point there was a, a, a captain a riverboat riverboat captain Which he makes was, sense that, that, that actually sounds of mark twain Mark and, Twain. But he died in like 1865 or something like that. So he felt it was safe to then use the pen name Mark Twain. He wasn't going to be, you know, using the same that someone else had used for yeah. a pen name as well. Which I don't know so. if like our listeners understand. Yeah, I mean, most would probably know if they did it from school, but his real name was Samuel Clemens. And then he yeah. did a bunch of uh, pen names. And Mark Twain was the one that stuck because he was a he loved the river. He was a riverboat captain for many years. Um, and that's a term that they used to measure. Was it 12? 12 feet that was, that was, like, that was so many fathom. two fathoms deep yeah it was like it meant, meant that the, the, the river was was deep enough for the boat to continue they would mark the they boat. would measure it and so it was like it was a happy sound to hear mark twain because that meant the river is clear and yep. uh, yeah in fact he he really loved the river though he got a job for his one younger brother who died at age like 17 20 like pretty young and that really haunted mark for a long time at which hmm. He was one of three siblings that died, so he had a lot of, which was not uncommon in the in the area or in the, the right, time yeah, period, but a lot, yeah. still, yeah, he and didn't so, have necessarily an easy life. Yeah, I think you know, it, talking about that, I think it's interesting because nowadays we kind of look back at that era and we say, oh, they were tougher people, right? Because they lost so many. I mean, siblings, parents. I mean, it's crazy how young these mm -hmm. people Dad died were at when 11. they're. Yeah, when their dads were dying when they were like 15 and they were like thrust into being leaders of the family. And, um, uh, you know, uh, a particular podcast I was listening to kind of touched on that where it was saying, you know, we don't, there's no proof that these people were tougher. They just had to deal with it. 
right? Like no, no, no human can <laughs> like the feelings you feel when your loved ones die affect you. You just in those days it was more common, so you were like, you I won't say you got over it faster, but it was just kind of you know you grieved in your own way and you moved on. Um, I think that can be seen in the writing. Another thing I was thinking of about this was. I'm kind of, you know, obviously uh, next episode we're talking about uh, Washington Irving and, you know, the previous one we talked about the Leatherstocking series with James Fenimore Cooper. But I I think if you kind of look at it, yeah, James Fenimore Cooper was kind of the first popular American writer and he did kind of the frontiers in Kentucky, right? Kentucky, Tennessee, sort of that area. Then we got Mark Twain dealing with the West. I think that's what we're talking about now. I think the next one is Ernest Hemingway, truly, um, for in terms of like popular American writers. Mm, yeah. And one thing that I found interesting is, you know, Ernest Hemingway died in Sun Valley, Idaho, right? He killed himself there. Um, but it, there is this obsession with the West that these great American authors had and kind of the way of life. And it's almost like they admired it, but they didn't or they couldn't bring themselves to necessarily be a part of it. Um, which I think is a really interesting take as we move in through the podcast. Obviously, we'll talk about dime novels, but that's a very common thing where, you know, the city folk love hearing about cowboys, but they, at the end of the day, they want nothing to do with it. (laughs) Yeah. And some of the, some of the, what we consider the, the quintessential Western stories were a lot of times written by people who weren't from there. Some never even went there. I know the, exactly. uh, Fran Fran Stryker, who wrote the Lone Ranger radio series for, you know, 15 years or 20 years, however long that was on, he wrote, it was said that he wrote the equivalent of, of the length of the Bible three times a year, writing Long Ranger scripts. Wow. He never went west of the Mississippi. Yeah. Once. It's crazy. You know, but he was writing these stories that everybody considered to be, in those days, for, you know, for entertainment for, especially for young people, Westerns. And he, mm-hmm. he never, he never even saw the West. Yeah. So I'm curious. Uh, yeah. We, we'll uh, have to dig into that a little bit about what, what sources he was pulling from. I would wager. Yeah. Mark Twain was one of them, um, possibly in terms of his view of a cowboy, right? Right. Yeah. That's also why you get this such a romanticized version of a cowboy that just keeps building up, building up, building up. That's not necessarily grounded in a lot of fact, because you know they're <laughs> they're they're yeah. basing it off of you know not true to life uh, views of it. So as uh, as uh, Theodore Roosevelt found out, which we'll talk about in two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> the West is not all it's cracked up to be. Being a cowboy is tough. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So before we uh, wrap up this episode, we're gonna—I I have a couple quotes from Roughing It, and these are some of my favorite <laughs> yes. quotes. And they happen pretty these early on in the uh, in the book. But um, one of them has to deal with firearms and the observation of 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 a. a a pistol, which was called the Allen pistol, or which we would probably know more as like a pepper box. It was just, you know, basically a little, a little hand where it's just, it was just a, this, the, just, you know, the barrel and the whole thing turned. And that, that was, that was the, the, the subject of the gun. So this is kind of gives you a, an idea. If you've not read the book of how Mark Twain would, would um, observe things. So here's his story on the Allen pistol starting off quote. I was armed to the teeth with a pitiful little Smith & Wesson 7-shooter, which carried a ball like a homeopathic pill, and I took the whole 7 to make a dose for an adult. But I thought it was grand. It appeared to me to be a dangerous weapon. It only had one fault, 
you could not hit anything with it. One of our conductors practiced a while on a cow with it, and as long as she stood still and behaved herself, she was safe. But as soon as she went to moving about and he got to shooting at other things, she came to grief. The secretary had a small-sized Colt's revolver strapped around him for protection against the Indians and to guard against accidents. He carried it uncapped. Mr. George Bemis was dismally formidable. George Bemis was our fellow traveler. We had never seen him before. He wore in his belt an old, original Allen revolver, such as irreverent people called a pepper box. Simply drawing the trigger back, cocked and fired the pistol. As the trigger came back, the hammer would begin to rise and the barrel would turn over and presently down would drop the hammer and away would speed the ball. To aim along the turning barrel and hit the thing aimed at was a feat which was probably never done with an Allen in the world. But George was, George's was a reliable weapon, nevertheless, because as one of the stage drivers afterwards said, if she didn't get what she went after, she would fetch something else. And so she did. She went after a deuce of spades nailed against a tree once and fetched a mule standing about 30 yards to the left of it. Bemis did not want the mule, but the owner came out with a double-barrel shotgun and persuaded him to buy it anyhow. It was a cheerful weapon, the Allen. Sometimes all its six barrels would go off at once, and then there was no safe place in all the region roundabout but behind it. <laughs> Even then, it's not necessarily safe with that much powder going off. Yeah. I'm blow your wrist in half, man. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of powder going off love, at once. Right. That's why I said it's kind I of love, an un- unnecessary shotgun without no being, yeah, I mean, right. be a shotgun. Yep. yep, yep. I just love his description of, you know, they were trying to shoot at a card and, you know, they shot a view <laughs> way off to the left, you know. And, and, uh, and, and in yeah, the like book, the and I have the copy. Bill. <laughs> <laughs> the copy of the book I have is a, uh, it's the, well, Time Life Classics of the Old West series that they did, a leather-bound series, and it's they're they're all exact reproductions of what the original first editions look like. And they actually the first edition, the, the original edition of Roughing It is full of illustrations. I mean, there's an illustration on much every page. There's pictures in it. There's pictures in it. Uh, so oh, there's I there's a picture interest. where you see where they're they're the guy is the guy that comes out with a shotgun and is pointed at him, and he's pointing at his mule over there because it's way over way off to the left, dead and and stuff like that. So it's. It's pretty good. Well, I have one more. One more I want to read, and this was also something I found kind of, kind of funny. This is this is another observation on his uh, stagecoach journey out west, and this is, this was uh, titled, "Mail for the Indians." Here it is. Quote: Our coach was a great swinging and swaying stage of the most sumptuous description, an imposing cradle on wheels. It was drawn by six handsome horses. And by the side of the driver sat the conductor, the legitimate captain of the craft, for it was his business to take charge and care of the mails, baggage, express matter, and passengers. We three were the only passengers this trip. We sat on the back seat inside. About all the rest of the coach was full of mailbags. We had three days delayed mails with us. Almost touching our knees, a perpendicular wall of mail matter rose up to the roof. There was a great pile of it strapped on top of the stage, and both the fore and hind boots were full. We had 2,700 pounds of it aboard, the driver said. A little for Brigham and Carson and Frisco, but the heft of it is for the engines, which is powerful troubles and thought they get plenty of truck to read. But as he just then got up a fearful convulsion of his countenance, which was suggestive of a wink being swallowed by an earthquake, we guessed that his remark was intended to be facetious and to mean that we would unload the most of our mail matter somewhere on the plains and leave it to the Indians or whoever wanted it. 
<laughs> and, uh, so anyway, that's one way to deliver the mail. A, dump it out there. <laughs> just dump it out there. And then in the book, there's an illustration where you have you have this uh, you have this Indian sitting there. He's got a newspaper reading it. I've seen that here. picture. That's, yeah, that's a great. <laughs> yeah, it's labeled. It's labeled pleasing news, and he's sitting there by 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 his campfire and his teepee, and he's reading reading the newspaper. So <laughs> one, of the, one of the bits Again, of mail they just, just, just dumped out there in plains. <laughs> yeah, I would so suggest that's... that. Yeah, if, if if you know any listener is is wants to get into Mark, I would say roughing it is one of a good place to start. It's very entertaining, and then if you can't even bring yourself to. Uh, to do the uh, the book, there's there's another alternative. Yeah, yeah. There there was a a, a film made, um, a two part. It was a TV movie actually, and and don't don't shoot me for this, but it was a Hallmark movie. Oh, I guess uh, I forgot that it was a Hallmark I actually movie. Didn't know yeah. that. I know I've, I've watched it. I didn't know it was a Hallmark. Yeah, it was. Movie, it was wow. It was a Hallmark movie, but it didn't follow it, the traditional. The, you know, team. girl runs away from her whatever yeah. world and to to start a new life and falls in love. I mean, that's the typical Hallmark. Right. That's Hallmark. <laughs> yeah. They actually had there was I, I, right around that time there were several other films they came out with as well that were kind of based on more historical things. There was a, a film with Tom Berenger called The Johnson County War that they did as well. I've never actually seen it. Um, but it's so they actually were kind of doing some subjects like that there in the early 2000s. Um, so, yeah, this was in 2002 was a two part uh, movie that came out. James Garner, um, who has a big history in Westerns, he was in Maverick way back in the day. Uh, he plays old Mark Twain, recounting his travels west to a group of students. The, the film was directed by Charles Martin Smith, who's probably best known. He played Terry the Toad in American Graffiti. Um and uh, had had stars in it like Ned Beatty and and Adam Arkin. Ned Beatty plays Slade, who's talked about in the book, who's this, who uh, kind of is the regional manager for part of the stage line. He's known to be like a notorious gunfighter, and everybody's scared of him. Yeah, and Slade. Twain has a run in, run in with him inadvertently and gets away with his life uh, when he accidentally insults him. <laughs> so, so it's it's a really it's a it's a really good film. It obviously takes some quite different takes from where the book goes. Um, but I mean, a lot of the stories are, are kind of still present in there. I mean, the whole thing about the, uh, the mail for the Indians is in there. Um, they, they the, the movie kind of combines it with another part of the book where they have, uh, uh, the thorough brace on their stage breaks. And so right when it breaks, they decide, well, we might as well give some mail to the Indians right here because our stage coach is falling apart. Um, light the load. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it's it's a it's a it's a great film, and I think there's there's some streaming services out there that have it now. It, for a while, it was really hard to find. I mean, I I found a DVD copy once, and and got a good deal on it for twenty bucks. Whenever the DVD was selling, a lot of places for like eighty bucks. It got really rare for a while, but wow. it's since popped up on some streaming services and things like that. I think you can find it on Amazon at the time of this recording. I think it's on Amazon Prime. Um, so check it out. It's it'll get you kind of into the story, kind of get you the 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 gist of it, and the kind of the, the humor I think kind of comes through in it. But uh, yeah, another one. Know, that's, as with all things, the book's always better, you know. So yeah, another one that's really interesting too is a uh, Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court. That one's really yeah. interesting as well. That's a good one too. And also, I mean, if if reading's not your jam, um, I guess a plug for do an audiobook. All these are in the public domain, so you can find go like to to LibriVox. Uh, LibriVox.org has. Uh, is a place where volunteer people just read books and you can, you can listen to it that way. That's how I listened to uh, several years ago, Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's court that I think I listened to um, uh, Tom Sawyer 
through that as well. And you're kind of hit and miss again. It's they're they're volunteers, so some of the readers are pretty good, and some are kind of you know they probably should stick with their day job. But um, you know, nonetheless, you can get it read to you that way. So there's there's ways you can you can access this, and you know also. I guess, you know, last time we talked about the leather stocking tales, you can find all those as well. So, um, yeah, there it is. There's Mark Twain's roughing it. Um, I would say it would be a, uh, another good, um, book that kind of shows the early frontier and you kind of see it through his eyes. Um, so as with originally we talked about, um, Finmore, James Finmore Cooper's leather stocking tales, which you'd say would be pure fiction. I'd say Twain kind of goes into the nonfiction but with some fiction to it you know it was from his perspective and and next time the plan is we're going to talk about washington irving and i guess you'd say his books would probably be more construed as i guess nonfiction history kind of more more Uh pure history and not 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 storytelling doesn't mark talk about that doesn't he have a quote about like um the history of best I could recollect it or something like that. It's like, basically it's, 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 it's the true history as well as I can remember it. Basically I'm, I'm, you know, I'm making this up. <laughs> uh, I feel like that was a problem. quote of his, but yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, that's going to do it for our episode here. Before we go, uh, Tristan, do you want to give us the lowdown on all the details of where people can find yeah. out more about us? So thank you, audio listener, and uh, you're the reason we do this. You can visit our website at thecowboypodcast.com for our episode notes, contact information, announcements and such. Probably need to get there updating that. And then, uh, as we mentioned, we now have a uh, website, the buymeacoffee.com forward slash cowboypodcast, where you can help support the podcast and our crippling coffee and bean addiction. And... Uh, and always, please rate, subscribe the podcast, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen, and share the podcast with your friends, family, and fellow dime novel authors. And that helps get other people to hear it. And uh, thank you for all your support. Great. Well, thanks, guys, for joining me for this episode. That was a lot of fun to talk about Mark Twain. It's a yeah, it's a great subject. Fun subject. Yeah, we could we could have kept going on and on, and uh, but but time has has grown short for us here. Um, But yeah, come back next time. Like I said, we're going to talk about Washington Irving and some of his important works on the early frontier. I'm really excited about that. That actually uh, has some interest to the history of where all three of us grew up. So Mm. that's that's kind of also going to be a fun little thing to delve into a little bit. So join us for that next time. Thank you for listening. And until then, see you down the trail.